the stuff of nightmares. Hey everybody, this is Rick Ness, host of the Stuff of Nightmares podcast. Ever since I was a child, I was fascinated by stories of the paranormal and the unknown. Reading about encounters with Bigfoot, the Jersey Devil, UFOs, or even living in a house where spirits roam intrigued me. As an adult, reading true crime stories and watching true crime documentaries made me realize that monsters don't just live in your closet or under your bed. Monsters might just live next door. Come with me on a journey to the unknown and the unthinkable, where the things that people do to each other are just as frightening as the things we can't explain. Every episode, I will delve into the world of the paranormal and lesser-known heinous true crimes. Each story of the unknown will be true first-hand accounts told by the person that had the experience or submitted to me to be read for them. You can listen to the Stuff of Nightmares podcast on the website at www.thestuffofnightmarespodcast.show, your favorite podcast app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi guys, this is Fatal Tales. My name's Katie. And I'm Azra. And today we're going to be finishing up the Jennifer Pan case. It's a really interesting conclusion, and we just hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, it's going to be a wild one, and so if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you go back and listen to the first part, because it's kind of like essential reading for this one, because there's a ton of really important information. Definitely. Also, guys, we just wanted to do a quick trigger warning on this episode for rape and suicide. There's kind of some discussions throughout. They're brief mentions, but then there's a couple different times that we mention them. So if that's something you don't feel comfortable hearing discussed, please, you know, feel free to skip this one and just listen to the next one. So yeah, I guess we'll just get right into it. So we kind of left off with Jennifer being caught in her lies by her parents and being forced to stay at home. She was kind of under house arrest. Her boyfriend Daniel had broken up with her and had started seeing another girl and so Jennifer started sending herself, her ex-boyfriend, and her ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend threatening text messages and so because Daniel had been worried about Jennifer because of these text messages he started talking to her again and they had started kind of a flirtatious relationship and that's kind of where we had left off and so around this same time Jennifer started talking to someone she had known by the name of Andrew Montemayor who she had known back in elementary school and she had reconnected with him she had known him, she'd been friends with him back in elementary school, like I said, and it was pretty well known that Andrew had a crush on Jennifer, and that's kind of why she reconnected with him, because she kind of wanted to make Daniel jealous at the same time. But um, after telling Andrew about her dad and her problems with him, Andrew told Jennifer that at one point he had considered killing his own father. And so the idea of killing her father caught Jennifer's attention, and so Andrew introduced Jennifer to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan, who said he could kill Jennifer's father for her. So it's kind of like immediately once Jennifer hears the idea, like the thought is in her, implanted in her brain that, oh, my father can be killed. Like, she just latches onto it and she can't let go of it. Right. Now, Jennifer and Ricardo planned that they would, or that Ricardo would murder her father in the parking lot of his work and that he would charge her $1,500 for this. She gave him all of the money up front, the whole $1,500, and this money had come from, like, the piano classes that she had been teaching, but right after she gives him the money, he stops answering her calls, and Jennifer's like, aw, fuck, he ripped me off. Which, like, if you're talking to some random guy that you, like, kinda know, or, like, you're, like, friend's roommate, like, of course they're gonna rip you off. Especially about killing your- like, nobody is gonna kill someone for $1,500. Especially not some, but, like, it's, if it's not, like, a close relationship, so. Right. It's kind of ridiculous that she thought that this would work this easy. Right. Now, it's important to note here that 
neither Andrew nor Ricardo have ever been found guilty of any sort of crimes. And they both deny that this happened the way that she says that it happened. So it's entirely possible that Jennifer kind of maybe was talking to them and said some things and asked him to do some things. And he kind of maybe thought it was a joke. And then she gave him the money and he was like, yeah, that's fucking weird. You know? Um, but to right. me, I don't know. She's, if she really did this and this really did happen the way that she says it does, that's pretty fucking naive. It is naive. According to Ricardo, when they met, because there's, like, people who saw them meeting when they met, she asked him to kill her father, like, up front, because she was like, oh, I'm really fucking unhappy, I want you to kill my father. And he immediately was like, um, fuck you, and then refused to ever see her again. So, this is what Jennifer is saying happened, and, like, I'm kind of torn between believing this and not believing this. Because, like, obviously, as you guys will find out, she come, she and Daniel both come up with, like, a more elaborate plan later on. Like, I don't understand why she would feel the need to lie about this happening initially. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because, obviously, we have a very unreliable witness, right? Mm-hmm. Um the Ricardo has every incentive to say, no, I would never, I would never agree to kill somebody for money and then not do it. But also Jennifer lied about a lot of things very convincingly to her family. So she's also not reliable. Exactly. Now, at the same time as this planning with Andrew and Ricardo had been going on, Jennifer's relationship with Daniel had begun to escalate once more, and she started to sneak out of his house, out of her house to see him. But every time they saw one another, after Jennifer would leave, Daniel would receive a threatening text message. At one point after a date with Jennifer, Daniel received a text message saying, quote, she's going to have to pay, end quote. So worried about Jennifer, Daniel called her and when she didn't answer, drove to her house and parked outside and kept calling only for Jennifer to finally answer and tell him, she was fine and just be like what the fuck is happening like why are you so worried i'm just fine daniel kind of started to notice that the texts only came after dates and contained information about their dates and what they did on them that only he or jennifer would know unless someone was like stalking them on every single fucking date they went on (laughs) And he also noticed that he never, ever got a text message in her presence. It was only after she left that he would get a text message. So it's pretty obvious that she's the one doing it from our perspective, you know? Yeah, and Daniel starts to get suspicious of her at this point, too. Like, he even is like, yeah, I think she's sending these. But Jennifer starts to sense that he was getting suspicious and so she decided to instead of like stop threatening him she decided to amp up the threats on one night daniel got a text saying we've sent something to her house the next time she opens it boom and he immediately called jennifer and she told him that she had received a package but had taken it to the police without opening it now this is an obvious bold-faced fucking lie there's no way in hell that if you got a package that you didn't know where it came from, you would first thing think, oh, this is dangerous. I need to take it to the police. Like if I got a package that I didn't know where it came from, I'd take it inside and assume that one of my roommates ordered it. Like how does she know that her parents didn't order something? Or not only that, but like even if it's like not addressed in just kind of a weird package, you don't, I I don't know. I don't assume that this needs to go to the police station. I assume that it it's for somebody else and I go looking for who it belongs to you know well I mean the package was in her name like it was addressed to her so then you open it right exactly like you just assume that somebody sent you a package like it's a gift for you like right maybe Daniel has sent her something like a gift like a present for her you know I don't know like there's a million reasons why you could be getting a fucking package in the mail that you didn't order Right. 
like why nobody takes those sh- that shit to the police like if you don't want to open it then just throw it out don't take it to the police nobody's gonna believe that you took it to the police but daniel is a fucking idiot and he believed her right now after this jennifer tells daniel that she found a bag in her mailbox that had white powder in it and she took it to the cops and that they told her it was itching powder She also told him that the police were so worried about her quote-unquote stalker that they had investigators going through her mail and following her around. Again, she's just kind of, like, ramping up these lies, making it just as outlandish as possible, because there's no fucking way. You tell the police you have a stalker that's sending you shit, and they're like, oh, cool, you have a secret admirer. Police are fucking incompetent, and they don't give a shit about this kind of stuff. No, like, no police, no, no police department is gonna be so worried about one singular person like one singular like average citizen that they're gonna have police officers going through your fucking mail because they think you might have a stalker because this stalker sent you itching powder in the mail because that's so so that's so dangerous guys getting itching powder in the mail also even if you got powder i don't know that they would test it like they'd just be like We'll get rid of this for you. Like, testing chemical compounds requires a lot of time and energy. And if it's just a stalker case, like, they'll just be like, yeah, throw it in the trash. Like, right. And they'll probably, at the very, like, at the most, they'd probably just be like, well, there's nothing we can do now. Let us know if somebody shows up on your property and then we can file a restraining order for you. Because that's what the fucking police do. That Like, in reality. (laughs) Right. And, like, restraining orders, never mind. Never mind. It's fine. Basically, this just doesn't make any sense and this isn't how police work. But Jennifer ramps it up yet again when she claims that her father had had to chase away five masked teenagers from her home because they had continually been knocking on the front door one evening. And then escalating that even further, she told Daniel that days later, after she got home from a jog, the same five teenagers pushed her into her home and into her room and raped her. Why didn't she report that to the police if she's telling them about this itching powder? How are there five people in her house unnoticed? Like, literally. Her parents are super helicoptery. Wouldn't they realize that this is happening? I'm all for believing women. 110%. I just... It's got some holes. So she told Daniel that she had gone to the hospital after being raped and that and then when daniel asked to see like the hospital you know the like the wristband that you get at the hospital with your name on it when daniel asked to see that she was like oh my mom took it she has it with her like what why does your mother have that what the fuck i feel like jennifer's lies are so weird and the way that she just like gets away with it like people just are like eh Sounds legitimate. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't fucking spoiled. Um, Daniel does say that even though it occurred to him that she might have been lying, he believed her because, you know, they were close. But every time he asked her for any sort of proof for the claims, she couldn't show any. So it's just kind of this, I think... I think it's the same thing where if you're close to somebody, you want to believe them. Like, you don't want to think that someone lies to you. Right. Like, you believe in them until the end because it's better than... In your mind, it's better than having to admit that they've been lying to you potentially this whole time. Right. At this point, Jennifer and Daniel began to plan something that they thought was more clever a hit on both Han and Bick. So they did. They wanted to do this so that Jennifer could collect her portion of what would be left for her from their insurance policies, and then the two could live together, you know, happily ever after like a fairy tale with both her parents fucking murdered. Daniel gave Jennifer an iPhone and a SIM card that she could use without her parents' knowledge, separate from her other Samsung cell phone, which they monitored. He then got her in contact with a friend of his by the name of Lenford Crawford, who went by the nickname Homeboy. Dude, if I had a name like Glenford, you would not catch me using it ever, so... 
I no, but I also wouldn't go by the nickname Homeboy. That's fucking lame. I'm sorry if you're listening and your nickname is Homeboy. You gotta change that shit fast. (laughs) (laughs) If your name's Lenford, you also better get on that. Literally. Oh my god. Oh boy. That's your parents' fault, though. That's not your own fault. If your nickname is Homeboy, that's your own goddamn fault. Right. Um, Jennifer asked Lenford what the rate for contract killing was, and Lenford said it normally was $20,000, but because she was Daniel's friend, he would be able to do it for half the price, so for $10,000. Normally, I kill people for $20,000, but, you know. For you, I'll do it for half the price. Normally. Normally. When I kill people. (laughs) Well, he's not even the person who kills people. He's like the person who finds the people who kill. Oh my god. I'm gonna kick this kid's ass. (laughs) I know. Now, November 8th, 2010 was the night that Jennifer and Daniel and Daniel's friends decided on for the night of the murder plot. Jennifer received a text from Lenford stating, After work, okay, will be game time. That day was a seemingly normal one for Han and Bick, and that evening, Bick had gone out line dancing while Han read the news before retiring to bed around 8.30pm. Jennifer watched TV in her room for most of that time, and at 9.30pm after Bick came home, Jennifer got a call from a man named David... Nope. Not even going to try that last name. I, I looked at it and I said, mm-mm. So, David something, who was an acquaintance... Babe, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> it's David... It's David Milvaganam. I can do that, and I will do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you just said it, so there you go. He was an acquaintance of Lenford's. That's the only important thing. Yes, that he's an acquaintance of Lenford's. That's the important part. And his name is David. And his name is David. And that's how we'll refer to him from here forward. Yes, his name is David, not Daniel. Do not mix up David and Daniel because I fucking do it all the time. Yeah, so she gets a call from David and they spoke for about two minutes. And then after they hung up, Jennifer went downstairs And she was claiming to be, like, saying goodnight to her mom, um, who was soaking her feet and watching TV, but she really had gone downstairs to unlock the front door. So, at 10.02pm, Jennifer turned on the lights in the upstairs study to signal to the intruders that, you know, she was ready, and then switched them off one minute later. And then three minutes later, at 10.05... Oh, I just want to say that we know that she turned the lights in the upstairs study on because their neighbors across the street had a camera, like, outside their house that caught all this. And then at 10.05 p.m., David called Jennifer once more, and the two of them talked for three and a half minutes. And shortly after this is when David, another man by the name of Eric Cardi, who was another acquaintance of Lenford's, and a third unknown man entered the pan home through the unlocked front door. Now, the neighbors reportedly had said that they saw three men outside of Jennifer's house, and then that neighbors who I mentioned had a camera outside of their house had seen a car driving past and parking close to the pan home. So these three men got inside and used shoe, reportedly, according to Jennifer, used shoelaces to tie her arms behind her back, and she gave the men $2,500 in cash, which was the remaining money that she owed them from the $10,000 that she had said that she would pay Lenford. That's messy and fucked up. Yep. David entered the room where Han was sleeping, and Han woke up to a gun in his face. David led him from the bedroom downstairs to where Bick was being held at gunpoint by the third man. I just want to say that that must be so fucking terrifying, waking up to a gun in your face and then being led downstairs where your wife is, like, crying with another gun being held to her face. Like, ah, cannot imagine how fucking terrifying and surreal that must have felt. Horrible. Mm Mm-hmm. Now... 
the men kept demanding that the pans give them money, but Han told them that they only had $60 in cash and that they could take anything that they wanted. Any of the furniture, any of the appliances, any, you know, TVs, whatever. But instead of being satisfied with this, the men were angry and they hit Han in the head with the gun. And Jennifer was brought downstairs for a quick moment to talk to the third man before she was taken back upstairs and had her hands tied to the banister upstairs. So as she was taken up the stairs, Bick called out for Jennifer and begged the intruders not to hurt Jennifer and to spare her. So clearly they were, her parents were very concerned for Jennifer this time, which is really sad because Jennifer is the one that's orchestrating this whole thing. Right. And as we'll find out, like some of Bick's last words were her begging these intruders, these men that Jennifer had hired to kill her to not hurt her daughter like the person that she loved the most in the world it's just really fucking sad yeah it is like it's tragic and it's sad and it kind of really breaks your heart because like obviously your mother loves you and cares for you and it's just like i don't know it just kind of breaks my heart i agree and so they took her parents to the basement And then Jennifer claims she heard gunshots from upstairs. Han had been shot twice, once in the shoulder and once in the face. And Bick had been shot three times in the head, which had killed her instantly. Immediately after shooting them, the men fled the scene. Now, Jennifer claims that while she was tied to the banister with her hands behind her back, She had somehow managed to get her cell phone out of the waistband of her pants and call 911. So we're going to do kind of like a table read off the 911 call. I'm going to be the operator and Katie's going to be Jennifer. So, what's your name? My name's Jennifer. Someone broke in? Someone broke in and I heard shots, like pop. I don't know what's happening. I'm tied upstairs. Did it sound like gunshots? I don't know what gunshots sound like. I just heard a pop. You can hear Han in the background screaming. I'm okay. My dad just went outside screaming. Do you think your mom is downstairs too? I don't hear her anymore. Please hurry. I don't know what's happening. Ma'am? I don't know where my parents are. And then that's the end of the call. Now, it seemed that Han had managed to survive the initial attack, and after the intruders left, he ran from the house to a neighbor's home, and the neighbor had thankfully been in the driveway and called 911. Han survived, but was put into a coma at the hospital, and he ended up pulling through and survived the attack. However, Bick died in the basement that night. That's really sad, because, you know, we talked a lot the last episode in part one about how the the Pans were probably not the best parents, and how they put a lot of pressure on jennifer and you know like all these different things and about her childhood and her upbringing but at the end of the day like that doesn't fucking matter because none of that is an excuse to kill people and none of that is an excuse to you know hire hitmen to kill your fucking parents because like if you're that unhappy like i said last episode just move out you know right and not only that but like these par- the, like these people like fed her, clothed her, paid for her schooling, her you know, anything she needed or wanted. And like I'm not saying that you have to like want to be around your parents or you have to like your parents, but like you can't kill people ever, you know? No. Like yeah. that's not an option. Right. And obviously she wasn't happy around her parents. They didn't make her happy. Her family put a lot of pressure on her. That's shitty and that sucks. You don't fucking kill them. Right. You know? Right. You move out. You tell them, I'm moving out. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And if you can accept me, then that's great. And if you can't, then whatever you know right like that's what you do in this like if you're really at your wits end in that situation that's what you do you don't kill them right killing people there's never an excuse to kill someone right i don't know like this is just so fucked up especially because like 
she did it for Daniel at the end of the day. That's really why she did it. I feel like a big part of her motivation for a lot of things in this story is Daniel. Which is funny because, like, he was willing to date other people. Right. Like, he liked this other chick a lot. Like, he liked her a lot. Whatever. Like, Jennifer just seems very, very, very immature, even though she's, like, 23 years old. Yeah. And you could Um, argue that that's maybe because her parents never let her grow up, but at the same mm -hmm. time, like, what she does is super fucked. Right. Yeah, there's just no excuse. So, you know, as soon as this happens, obviously the police start looking into it, and right from the start, this case looks strange to the detectives, because... No vehicles or items were taken, even though this was apparently a robbery. There was no sign of forced entry, which means that the front door had to have been unlocked. Which, why would the front door have been unlocked? Everyone was home for the night. Right, exactly. So, no family's gonna leave their front door unlocked. Especially her family who had moved from somewhere that was unsafe to somewhere safer and were concerned about it. Right, like, we didn't mention this yet, we haven't mentioned this until this point, but, so, they had originally been in Scarborough, and they had moved to the town of Markham, because in Scarborough, their their house had been broken into, and they were just feeling really unsafe because their house had been broken into, and so they were like, we want to move to, like, a, a safer neighborhood in a safer area, so, like, they're going these are the kind of people who are absolutely going to keep their house door locked right there's no way they wouldn't right so as well as this police also found 240 dollars in bix purse 60 dollars in han's wallet and 20 dollars in jennifer's purse all of which were untouched which like if you're robbing a house you're gonna go for the purses and the wallets you know, like, that's right. the first thing you're going to go for. You're going to get the purses and the wallets if you're looking for cash. Like, if you don't want any appliances, you don't want the cars, you want the cash, you're going to get the purses and you're going to get the wallets. Right. Like, the fact that they would just trust Han's word that, like, there wasn't a lot of money in the house is ridiculous when they can search wallets or purses. Exactly. Exactly. Now, it was only hours after the murders that Jennifer was interviewed at 3 a.m., so, like, literally, like, five hours after the murder. And this was right after being told that her father had been put in a coma. Now, at this point, Jennifer was being treated as a victim by the cops, and they simply wanted to get all the information she could give them about the men who broke into her home that night. But even during her very first interview with the police, Jennifer was noticeably very, very, very anxious and jumpy. Like, so there was a point when the police officer tells her, like, do you understand that, like, if you lie, like, you know how they have to say at the beginning of the interview, like, lying is an offense and you could go to jail for lying to the officers during the interview. And she gets noticeably startled and, like, puts her fucking hand over her heart oh my god yeah and it's like you've been lying your entire life do a better job jennifer i think the thing that falls apart for jennifer is the fact that she is only someone who lies to her family and friends who want to believe her so when she gets around anyone who doesn't have an implicit trust of her and who doesn't necessarily implicitly believe her her lies are really fucking sad like they're bad She's not a very right. good liar. Right. Like, I'm sure that if it was only Bick that she had been dealing with her whole life, she would have gone away with her lies for forever. Because Bick just had an inherent trust for her, like, no matter what. But it was always Han that was more suspicious of her. Right. One thing that really stood out to detectives as strange is the detail that Han ran out of the home, even though Jennifer was tied to the banister upstairs and the intruders were gone. And it kind of made them wonder what kind of father would leave his daughter in the home, possibly injured and alone, instead of, you know, waiting and trying to save her and get her out as well. Now, when... Jennifer was asked why she was living at home with her parents while her younger brother lived away from home. She said that her family needed her home, which 
again, we've stated multiple times, she could have moved out. It's not true. She should have moved out. Why is she still living there? The last thing that the police tell Jennifer makes her really worry. So they tell her that they can use data collected from her cell phone to kind of figure out information about the intruders or the intrusion and things like that. Now, this worries Jennifer, but at this point, she thinks they only know about her Samsung phone and not her iPhone. So, basically, Jennifer is really shocked that when she tells the police, like, what happened, they don't just want to take her word for it. They want to corroborate it with, like, her phone records and make sure that she's not lying to them about the evening, which just is really fucking stupid to me because it's like, of course they're going to make sure that what you're saying is true. Right. Like, she's just like, what? You're not just going to inherently believe that I'm the victim in all of this and that, like, I'm the only person in this whole mess that wasn't shot and I had absolutely nothing to do with any of this? You're just not going to believe me at face value? You're going to actually do your job and investigate? What? Right. She's a fucking moron. (laughs) She really is. I hate this chick. I hate her so much. Especially because I think that she forgets the cardinal rule of police work, which is, like, it's always the person closest to the Mm -hmm. murders. Like, it's never... Not never. It's very rare that you're gonna see someone who's not related to the victim, like, in any way. Not friends, not family, not any kind of, you know, even a coworker. Like, most of the time, people, when they kill people, they kill someone that's close to them because they have personal vendetta or revenge or anger or they snap or, like, they'll get money from it, you know. Those are the motives for murder most of the time. So the idea that, like, random intruders would break in and claim that they're trying to steal stuff and then not actually steal anything and just leave after killing two people doesn't make any sense. No, it really doesn't. Like, you don't get... It just doesn't happen. Like, I think that people are scared. Like, it's an inherent fear that a lot of people have that, you know, there's gonna be a random intrusion. Somebody just is gonna randomly break into my house and rob my house while I'm sleeping at night and then murder me. People are just scared of that. It's just something that a lot of people are scared of, but it never happens. Like, or very rarely happens. Like, you have, like, rare cases, like Richard Ramirez, you know, but, like, other than that it's so rare it's just most of the time there's a reason for it like people who are robbing your house like they're gonna rob it during the day when they know that there's no one home definitely so like nothing about this makes sense and the police know that which is why they want to fucking investigate but jennifer's just a fucking moron like if she wanted this to work out she should have just not been home at that time of the intrusion. Right. Like, been at work or something and had her parents been attacked. Then there wouldn't have been a question about, like, why she wasn't shot, you know? Right. Like, it just seems so fucking obvious. Anyways, she's just a moron. Right. Now... After the initial interview with police, Jennifer went right back to the hospital to join her brother and extended family at Han's bedside. And to her family's relief, but Jennifer's, you know, she's fucking not happy when the doctor informs them that the bullet that hit Han's face had missed a artery and that he had somehow managed to survive because if it had hit the artery, it would have killed him. Now, he was still in a coma, but would wake up soon. And the second he woke up, he wakes up, the police are going to want to interview him. So, obviously, Jennifer is, like, freaking out at this point. So, she immediately asks her family for change to use a payphone and makes a call to Daniel, who doesn't answer. Now, as police continue to investigate, they receive an anonymous tip telling them that Daniel Wong was a drug dealer and that Jennifer helped him to deliver drugs. Now, they bring Daniel in for questioning, and he tells the police that he and Jennifer had dated, but they broke up two years ago. 
Daniel also tells police about how strict Jennifer's parents were and how much they controlled every aspect of her life. He also implies that he thinks that the murders are related to phone calls and threatening texts that he and Jennifer had been receiving. So he's kind of trying to help corroborate Jennifer's story about the stalkers or whatever. Now, after receiving the tip and after Daniel's interview and after they'd gone over the details of the case, they decide that some of the information that Jennifer gave didn't add up with everything that they knew. So they called her in for another interview and Jennifer admits to the police that she didn't continue with school after high school. She also admits to having a second phone but doesn't know where it is and it's at this point that she's told to demonstrate how she managed to call 911 with her hands tied behind her back and to the banister. So Jennifer kind of awkwardly demonstrates how it worked, but she can only do it like not tied up <laughs> and it looks just super fucking difficult and not really all that plausible. Right. So like they just get her to kind of like stand up and put her hands behind her back. And just be like, all right, show us how you did it. So she puts her cell phone in her waistband and she just like puts her hands behind her back. And she's like, well, I did it like this. And then I just dialed 911 with my hands behind my back. And then I just like yelled into the phone. Like I just screamed at the caller. Plausible. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's just, it's just stupid. (laughs) To me, I think the biggest thing that Jennifer fucked up is in not actually doing what she said. If her friends had tied her up in such a way that she was able to get to her phone and make the call and, like, done it in a way that, like, they knew that she could do it, she knew that she could do it, they had practiced, you know, then she could give them, like, a plausible, like, well, this is how they tied me, my hands were kind of here, I was able to, like, move a little bit, so I was able to get to this point. But the problem is, every step along the way, Jennifer's not actually doing what she said she, like, did in the moment. She's calling 911, not tied up. She's, you know, walking through the house. Like, things just don't line up with her story. Right, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Ugh, she's so stupid. Yeah, she really is. So at the end of the interview, when asked if she has had anything to do with the murder, Jennifer acts super shocked and offended at even being asked. She's like, me having had anything to do with my mother's murder? I'm aghast. <laughs> <laughs> now, on November 12th, two days after the attack, Han wakes up from his coma. And when interviewed by police, Han tells them that Jennifer had been both comfortable and freely moving around the house during the intrusion. Her hands had not been tied to the banister until the very, very end. Like I said, if you just do what you said you did, then none of this happens. But if you don't get tied up and if your friends are really nice to you through the whole thing, you look really hella fucking guilty. Exactly. Because, like, in, like, a freak incident like this where Han somehow manages to survive, then you're fucked. (laughs) Well, and not only that, but, like, it just for the plausibility of what happens. Right, exactly. You should do what you say you're doing. Mm-hmm, yep. Now, Han says that Jennifer talked to one of the intruders softly and like a friend. So, he obviously requested to not see Jennifer at all after this because Han knew in his gut that Jennifer was part of the murder like he knew like that she had planned this and was part of it which must fucking suck as a father yeah that's horrible yeah and it is at this point that jennifer is officially made a suspect in the investigation 10 days later jennifer is brought in for her third and final interview in this interview the detective begins by empathizing with her family situation and the stress that she was under you know with everything going on about like college and lying and things like that and then he turns the tables and demands to know what involvement she had in her mother's murder and jennifer panics and she spends one last lie she tells the detectives that the attack on her home had actually been meant for her and that she had been trying to kill herself but felt too weak to do it on her own so she hired these men to do it for her but the 
plan went wrong when her mother and father were targeted. Now, Jennifer, just lie. Like, I mean, obviously don't, because I don't want murderers to get away with it. I would really strongly prefer if, you know, murderers were not at large in society. But, like, lie better. Like, this is the weakest, most... What? Yeah. (laughs) She's just so bad. Like, the funny thing to me is that for somebody who spent so much of her life lying about every aspect of everything, she is so bad at lying and so bad at coming up with fake stories. It's just laughable, honestly. Well, and it's just like, why... Like, why would the, you know, would-be murderers go rogue? Like, killing two random people is very different than killing someone who has asked you to kill them. This is just so implausible. It really is. I don't understand what her thought process is here. Also, I don't understand why she thought she wouldn't get fucking in trouble for this, either. Uh, Right. She's just a moron. Right. Now, obviously the police immediately arrest her for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and attempted murder. Because they're like, yeah, no, that's not how that went down. So after her arrest, police obtained Jennifer's iPhone and were able to track down her co-conspirators. She obviously planned the murders mainly with Daniel and Lenford. However, police used these numbers she was in contact with to trace those men's burner phones and find others involved. Lenford's two acquaintances, Eric and David, were paid by Lenford to carry out the hit. Because Lenford and Daniel each had alibis for the night of the murder, they were both at work. The third man who was in the house is still unknown to this day. This blows my mind because I feel like, personally, if I did something like this, like, I never would, but if, you know, you do something like this, and then you get caught, and, like, there's a third guy out there that's not caught with you, don't Mm. you want him to be in jail, too? Like, just as, like, a I wasn't alone in this type of a thing? It's kind of funny because in trial... None of them ever really turned on each other. They all kind of were like, I'm innocent, but everybody else standing trial with me is innocent as well. Like, none of us did this. Exactly. They all really stood together. I'm not sure what it was, but like, they didn't want anybody to go down for this. I am going to say the book for this, A Daughter's Deadly Deception, really goes into the details of the investigation and goes into how the police tracked down all the cell phones and went through the call logs and all the text messages of different burner burner phones there's a ton of different burner phones there's also a lot more suspects in the case we decided not to add that into the podcast because it's kind of confusing it's kind of a lot and in a podcast i feel like it would just get kind of boring to listen to and kind of a lot to listen to, but if you are really interested in learning more about the investigation process, I do suggest reading the book because it goes really, really in detail about it. Um, So I'm just putting that out there. And in the book, they give more suspects, and I really highly do think that it could be one of those suspects or any of one of those other people that they looked into that could have been the third man in the house. Like, I don't think it's some random that the police never interviewed that is the third person who was in the house. I absolutely do believe that it's, like, someone that the police interviewed but just could never, like, fully find the evidence to pin it on, you know? Yeah. I mean, to me, I don't necessarily care so much that, like, they didn't turn on them in trial. I think the thing that surprises me is, like, once you're arrested, you're fucking caught, bro. And, like, maybe you're gonna try to appeal or whatever, but, like, you're pretty damn well caught in this case. Like, they did it. So, why not just be like, you know what? I know who the other guy was, you know? Right, right. Like, even after Jennifer was arrested, they showed her a picture of Eric while she was in jail, and she just turned away from it. She was like, I'm not telling you if that's who it is. After the long investigation, 
where police like went through all the call logs and the texts and all the information. Jennifer, Daniel, Lenford, Eric, and David were all facing charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The trial began on March 19th, 2014, which was three and a half years after the murder. Initially, the trial was supposed to be held for all five of them, but halfway through, Eric's lawyer got sick and decided that his trial would be held separately from the four of them. So they had just the four Jennifer, Daniel, Lenford, and David. The jury was not given the option of a second-degree murder charge. It was first-degree murder or nothing. So they had to try all of them on, you know, either they very intentionally did this or they didn't do it. Right. And even though Daniel and Lenford and Jennifer didn't actually physically shoot anybody, they all were conspirators in the murder. They all planned it, hired people, wanted them dead, and so by law, they are all equally as guilty as one another. Right. So we're going to start by talking about the prosecution in the trial. The prosecution presented information that prior to the hit, Han and Mick had sat Jennifer and Felix down to talk to them about the fact that they had just gotten new life insurance policies. And basically, with all of their assets combined, each of them, Felix and Jennifer, would individually get about $500,000, which is a hell of a lot of money. So that's obviously fucking motive. The prosecution also went over all of Jennifer's lies that she started telling back in high school. And they also brought Han to the stand, who talked about how betrayed he felt about all the lies that Jennifer had told, you know, from the time that she was young. Right. Han also talked about how Jennifer interacted with the intruders that night and how it seemed that she knew them. It seemed that she was comfortable with them and it seemed that she was never really afraid of them. Now, this is just like a part of the book that really stood out to me. So when the defense questioned Han after the prosecution, the defense lawyer said, quote, You had hoped your daughter was pursuing the hopes and dreams you had for her, correct? End quote. And Han responded, quote, That's correct. And I also hoped that my daughter was a good person. End quote. And I just read that, and I was like, oh, fuck. That's savage. That is savage. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, you do hope your daughter's, like, a fucking good person, not a goddamn murderer. Jesus Christ. That's horrifying. That is horrifying. Anyways, I just wanted to add that in because, like, that was, like, one of the lines that really stood out to me from the book. Yeah. Now, Jennifer is brought to stand by the defense, and she maintains that she wanted to hire the hit for herself. She says she felt helpless when her mother was being led into the basement, and that, you know, that was, like, a rogue decision by the, like, murderers that she hired. The prosecution asks if it's, quote, just a coincidence that on the day of the murder, she was in contact with every single other person who was on the trial with her. So they're like, come on, like, you were planning this. Now, Jennifer was found guilty for all of the charges that she was facing. So, first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, when she found out, she simply bowed her head until the press left. When the press left, she started to shake and cry uncontrollably, and the rest of her co-defendants were also found guilty. They were all sentenced to 25 years to life, and they have no chance for parole for 25 years, so their first parole hearing will be in 2036. It's what they deserve. That's all I'm gonna say. That's what they fucking deserve. So we mentioned that Eric Cardi's trial happened separately because of his lawyer's health. So his trial happened about a year later, and it was much simpler. He just pleaded guilty and received 18 years in prison which was on top of 25 years for another murder charge that he was already serving in jail. So, like, this is a bad dude. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, anyone who's willing to commit murder for hire, I feel like, is in a category all on their own. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I don't really understand murder, but, like, I think that 
under to like to a certain extent under certain circumstances anyone can be pushed to commit murder by circumstances that they're placed under but there are so many other things you can do for money murder should never be something that you get hired to do right so after the trial the judge granted a non-communication order at the pan's family request barring jennifer from ever speaking to her father or brother again which is good i feel like that's great for them they shouldn't ever have to speak to jennifer again if they don't want to you know i wouldn't want to (laughs) right well i mean she tried to kill you and she did kill your wife and mother yeah yeah no jennifer plans to appeal and apparently wants to reconcile with her family she has attempted to reach out to her dad despite the bar placed by the judge but her family's just like nah fuck you we don't want to talk to you I doubt they'll ever come around, which they don't need to. I think that this case is, like, super fucking tragic to me, though. I think that, like, I don't even know how to phrase what I'm trying to, like, what I'm thinking. I don't want to come across as, like, an apologist for Jennifer, but this is clearly a girl who's, like, got some mental health struggles Mm -hmm. and who is desperate for her family's approval. approval. And attention and love and I think that to a certain extent she murdered them because she thought that she could never get that and rather than you know being a normal fucking person and a mature adult about it you know she decided to have them killed because it was better that they were dead than that they didn't love her you know mm-hmm And that's really fucking tragic to me, because, like, even still, she wants to reach out, she wants their attention, she wants their love, she wants their, you know, she wants to communicate with them and reconcile with them, and it's like, I don't know that you understand the gravity, A, of what you did, but B, like, that ship has long sailed. Like, even if they talk to you, it's not gonna be a simple, you know, oh, we love you. Right. I think I feel sympathy for Jennifer because of, you know, her childhood and the way that she was raised and the amount of pressure that was put on her because I really don't think that any child should be put under that much pressure. And, you know, I don't care if you were put under that much pressure and you think you're fine now. You're probably not fucking fine. You probably have, like, severe anxiety and whatever, you know, like... I. I don't think that it's okay to put your kid under that much pressure. Period. Right. And I don't think it's okay to have that much expectations of your kid. And I don't think that it's okay to not accept that your kid might not be whatever you want them to be in life, you know? Right. But I also don't think that it's okay to take that pressure and take that stress and murder people because of it. Right. I mean, I think that it's hard... I think it's hard probably for a lot of people to put themselves in Jennifer's shoes, but I think it's especially hard for you and me because we have had the experience of saying, you know, maybe my parents won't love me and that's fine. Right. Um, I think, yeah, like, we've both had to deal with the, like, the... (laughs) Like, I've said this a couple times now, that coming out is fucking traumatic. Like, it's trauma. I don't care if anybody has anything different to say like it is traumatic whether or not the experience turns out to be good or bad like either which way it's a fucking traumatic experience like it takes a toll on your mental health and your physical health well because it's like i mean i guess maybe it's a little bit different if like you know that your parents are like super liberal or super like affirming but like for me my family is very conservative and they have very strong religious views and I knew exactly what was okay and what wasn't in my household and it really did not feel like being gay was an option at all so Mm. for me I genuinely just came to the terms with the fact that like I could potentially never speak to my family again after this happens and like I just barely came out and it went it went way better than I expected but if you have a conservative family or you have a family that maybe is not affirming or even if you do have a family that's affirming you maybe just don't know like 
Right. Like, I had a family that, like, I kind of really wasn't sure. Like, my parents, I really genuinely wasn't sure. I thought it could go either which way. Right. But it's kind of like a, a point where you're like, I'm okay with this. Like, I have, you have to be okay with it, you know? Right. And more so if you're coming from a family that's, like, super conservative. And that's the thing, like... I don't think any gay kid is gonna fucking murder their family because they don't think they're gonna be accepting of them if they come out, you know? Right. But I I think that, I I don't know, I was trying to say, like, where you and I have had to come to terms with that, like, idea, potentially, of, like, you know, my family may not love me and that's fine. It's difficult to understand where Jennifer's coming from in that, like, her parents' approval and their love is, like, the most important thing to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that doesn't really click for me. Yeah. Like, I, I really, truly value my family's opinion, and it was difficult for me to come out, but, like, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's totally different to think about, like, being in a headspace where, like, the only option you feel like you have is yeah. either killing yourself or killing them. Right. My parents love or like support of me and my relationship and whatever is very important to me but like it's more important that like I love and accept myself (laughs) right like I think that that's at the top of my list is that like I care about the decisions I make and I approve the decisions that I make and I'm happy with my choices and I'm confident in my choices right because like I've gotten to a point where like I genuinely like myself i'm not ashamed of who i am anymore which i think most kids who are dealing with their sexuality or whatever are for a very very long time and it takes a long time to get to the point where you're like oh hey i don't fucking hate myself anymore yeah that's true so like yeah i agree with you like it is weird that jennifer's sole purpose is to like have the approval of her parents Right. It is very odd. And it's just sad. Like, that that's a sad way to live your life. Where it is sad. It is. You feel like you absolutely only have yeah. their approval, and that's, like, the final word, you know? Mm-hmm. It's also sad to have that kind of relationship with your parents, though, where, like, if they didn't approve with one thing in your life, like, that would be it. Cut contact forever. Right. Ta- like, that's gone. You know, like, if I did something in my life that my parents didn't approve of, I feel like it would be more of a conversation. They would be clearly disapproving, but I would maybe be like, well, yeah, you might disapprove, but maybe I'm still going to do this. Like, I'll think about it, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do, whatever, you know. I would have a conversation with them. And whatever the outcome is, the outcome is that. But, like, at this point in my life, like, it's not going to be like a, it's a done deal. Right. With my relationship with them, you know. But it's scared that, like, something as simple as like not wanting to be a pharmacist right means that she could potentially lose them from her life forever yeah i mean that is fucked up it is it's super fucked up and and it's just so tragic like i don't know it i hate that her mom died from this like that they went through with the plan that everything worked out because it's to me jennifer's like this dumb insecure kid that makes a lot of really terrible decisions and like yeah. someone lost their life over it mm-hmm. like i feel like until uh, until the part when she starts sending those threatening texts to daniel yeah i can understand where she's coming from in a way like i'm like i can put myself in her head a little bit you know right like i'm like this is going too far pretend to go to university pretend to have these jobs it's going a little bit too far but like i can understand why she's doing it but at the point where she starts sending those threatening texts to daniel pretending she's getting fucking raped like that's the point where i'm like this is not okay and that's the point where i kind of start to disconnect my sympathy for jennifer in her childhood with like no there's like a line and she's absolutely crossed it right and she's crossing it and crossing it and crossing it multiple times until she's fucking murdered her mother like her own mother like the person who sympathized with her the most in her family the person who defended her to her father you know the person who cried out for her 
right before she died the person who begged the intruders to not murder her definitely and it's just like no matter how much sympathy we have for jennifer like she still at the end of the day murdered her mother and tried to murder her father and that's just not okay because like we said she could have just fucking moved out like all of her friends wanted her to because she was 23 years old she was an adult she had a job she had multiple jobs she could have kept teaching piano she could have kept working at the restaurant and just fucking moved out and lived with daniel right nothing was stopping her from doing that except herself yeah but yeah i guess that's the case yeah super super tragic yeah that was a really fucked up one very twisted web of lies it was a very twisted web of lies but yeah if you guys did enjoy this one make sure you consider sharing it with a friend who you think might also like listening to it leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts because that helps us out a lot follow us on instagram at fatal tales on twitter at fatal tales pod our social medias will all be linked in the show notes below you can also send us an email at fatal at gmail.com send us any case suggestions or anything else and I guess that's all. And remember, guys, be gay and don't do crimes. Or at least don't get caught. Have a good one, guys. Thanks. Bye.